It's January 30th, 2023. This is Rook. Welcome to episode 234 of Rook. Can a free Iran set a new standard for unity? I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto. Salam dostan aziz. Durud Imagine a free Iran setting a new international standard for unity. Do we dare to dream? Look, it's no secret that Iranians can suffer from a bad case of internal discord. We often lament that we are chronically disjoined. We seem to build up new potential stars and then come up with all the reasons they're wrong. We are the people that are desperate to ask, can't we all just get along? And it's been our frustration that we cannot defeat the Islamic Republic regime because the opposition is forever divided. And yet now we also can't let anyone have a pass in social media without being cancelled or derided. But guess what? This is actually not a unique phenomenon that is somehow only about Iranians today. It turns out bickering and partisanship is not only in our DNA. That's right, we're not alone in arguably the defining feature of 21st century civilization. And that is that all around the world, there is an epidemic of political polarization. You think Iranians are rife with dissension? Try looking to America and the cleavage along party lines that is shaking that country to its roots. The UK split itself on Brexit, and Brazil is divided to the extremes. Add India, or Poland, or Turkey to the list. Polarization is not just an Iranian illness, it's a global one. But what if we were to recast the possibilities of a future democratic Iran? What if we were to allow ourselves to strive for a society where disunity and sectarianism were largely gone? Is it possible? Can a free Iran set a new standard for unity? It might sound laughably naive, but it's worth an effort, is it not? If you're going to have a revolution, you might as well aim with everything you've got. And this wouldn't be about killing dissent or disagreement, quite the opposite. A variety of opinions is entirely worthy of preservation. It should be our mission to allow an exchange of opposing ideas and a robust, challenging societal conversation. But the part where nations and democracies are being divided to the core? At best, we suffer with enmities, and at worst, we end up in a civil war. Maybe the bright side of the devastating experience of the last 44 years with this barbaric regime in Iran is that we are all too aware of the folly of our own divisions. As disheartening as it's been to see potential new leader types get attacked and opposition factions end up in shouting matches, it's been just as energizing to see the global Iranian community want to keep that disunity in check and to remind everyone that we have a common goal, and that is a rehabilitated great country. And it's not for those of us on the outside to speak for those inside the nation, but we can definitely opine on the diaspora and the present-day situation. Admit it, when different prominent Iranians from different sides of ideological, political, or even cultural parts of our community come together, it can feel really empowering. Think of the strength of the young women who came together to start this uprising. Think of the power of united Iranian youth who refused to see the revolution die. Think of the artists and scientists and thought leaders who are just waiting to fly. 
There is so much wisdom and talent and compassion inside Iranians that a United Nation would be a powerhouse no matter what flag was unfurled. Can a free Iran set a new standard for unity? If it does, it can change the world. Coming up, a new edition of Rook featuring the very talented singer and performer Sabah Zamani, live in the Rook studio for an interview and performance, plus journalist and cartoonist Nikohan Kosar returns to Rook, and the roundtable is set to go. This is Rook, episode 234. Can a free Iran set a new standard for unity? studio you know what i'm excited about with what? this show sabo zomeni is mm-hmm. coming in as you know she's just yeah. outside she's gonna be here in the rook studio for an interview but she's also going to perform oh wow yes perform live here and i think we, we completely haven't practiced it but i think uh, shia and i are gonna actually back her up awesome jam jam yeah jam session jam on the on the on the show uh i guess shia will be on the piano and i'll be on the drums yes but uh sabah zameni so is it going to be first time that i'm playing with you i think so no no i mean as a like a record to some no Uh, maybe we've not done this before no no (laughs) jeez (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Poor Sabah. <laughs> she was like, yeah, you guys should play with me. I was like, oh boy. <laughs> she has no idea what she's getting into. But, uh, you know, Sabah Zameni, you know, this song, um, uh, how do you say it? Bizaram as Dineshomon. Yes. It is one of the anthems mm-hmm. of the, um, it's become one of the anthems of, of this revolution now. And Sabah, uh, you know, she was known, but this has um, really carried her mm-hmm. into a new stratosphere because she recorded this song, just her and a drum, uh, reciting this kind of um, um, revolutionary anthem that I think it, it's it's two or three decades old. It comes from Yazd, but she's you know casting it in a yes. way of basically speaking of the regime. I, I hate your version of religion and all of yes, this. Yes. And um, Iranians, this, this is an interesting one. I'm gonna tell her this, but this is one of those where if you grew up in Iran, or if you're steeped inside Iranian culture, all of that, you know this piece. Mm -hmm. If you're a diaspora kid entirely like me, didn't know it. Didn't didn't know it until the revolution, until now, you know? And then I see everybody singing along to it, and I go, how come everybody knows the lyrics? (laughs) What am I missing? Yeah. (laughs) So so Sabo Zamini, um, we've had her on the show before. She she was, she's only been in Canada for about a year or something, and up until a couple years ago, she was arrested and in jail, Mm -hmm. I think more than once, for you know, just wanting to sing mm-hmm. as a woman in Iran uh, and record, etc. Um, so very happy to have her uh, on the show and uh, we'll have a talk about how the last few months have been with her, for her, um, especially now that she's got these millions of people, fo- you know, viewing her work and she's having the impact she's having, but also to perform here. Mm-hmm. And then um, uh, after that, we're gonna go to Washington DC and Nikohan Kosar, Who's becoming something of a regular? The yes. uh, d- the journalist and uh, blogger and cartoonist, uh, Nico Heng, 
And I love having him on the show because he's kind of like, um, he's, I was going to say like Leonard Cohen. I mean, he's not, <laughs> I, I'm not going to say he's like Leonard Cohen, but in the sense that Leonard Cohen, I always felt like you could ask him anything. <laughs> and he's going to say, have a sage answer for you. You know, I, when Nick O'Han comes on, I just want to ask him about anything, mm-hmm. uh, anything at least Iranian related, Iranian diaspora related. He, a lot of his focus has been on water and the environmental situation in Iran, mm-hmm. uh, which continues to be a situation. Yeah. <laughs> Even though uh, the headlines have been overtaken by executions and um, horrific things happening at the hands of this regime, there also happens to be a dire environmental crisis that continues in Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to speak to that. And there was this earthquake that happened yeah. on the weekend. He, he, there was some report that he was um, sharing that that said that actually the the water supply uh, crisis in Iran, the water bankruptcy. Um, is not unrelated to to the impact of earthquakes. Wow. Iran's an earthquake zone, and without uh, without like like the, where this earthquake happened in Azerbaijan in that in the Azeri region uh, is is related to Lake Urmia um, having yeah. not being full. You know, yes. uh, so I don't. I, I mean, I, I don't know the science of this mm-hmm. or the geology of it, but but uh, um, one thing compounding another in crisis-ridden uh, Iran. So anyway, Nikohang will be here. I'm also curious to ask him about his take on the the leadership uh, yeah. endorsements and race and <laughs> all, all of that stuff. Uh, um, how was your weekend? It was good. It all was, right. uh, you know, relaxing a little bit Oh, after a long week, so it was nice. Okay. Right. How was your weekend? Me? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not used to shy asking how I am. Uh, I uh, was good. Yeah, got a bunch of stuff done, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, no, it was it was, it was all right. Um, I actually thought a lot about uh, this the essay you said I just did. I was thinking oh. about the mm-hmm. um, about how how polarization is a phenomenon, and I yes. and I read a bunch about it this weekend, and I was, and and. Um, I, I know it seems like a pipe dream to think that uh, mm-hmm. we can forge a new society, mm-hmm. you know, that is uh, unprecedented to a certain extent because there's, there's, you know, very few countries that are united that way. You know, you know, sometimes a country can unite when there is a common enemy. I'm thinking about Ukraine right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure there's some outliers, but it seems like that country is really united. Yes. You know, they may have some political arguments or conversations or differences or, but they are, you know, you're, you know, you, the, the Ukrainian people are so united and, um, Iranians feel like they have a, I feel like we, there's a common enemy and, uh, yeah. and in this case it's more internal than in the case of Ukraine. But, uh, um, but the, the case for unity should be so strong, mm-hmm. you know, in the face of that common enemy. Yeah. One of the actually, I mean, because you mentioned Ukraine war, one of the uh, ugly way that Islamic Republic, uh, especially at the beginning with the Iran-Iraq war, tried to unify people was with continuing war because in of that, course yeah so yeah, yeah. I mean and and we did a contemporary history of Iran yeah. uh, uh, episode about how the Iranic rock war yeah. uh, the conti- you know in intentional continuation of a benefited Khomeini yeah, yeah. and so uh, 
I mean, nowadays also there is a fear that Islamic Republic starts a war, and yeah. so mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, force people to be united. And I hope that's kind of a segue into a bit of a roundtable here before mm-hmm. we get to uh, Sabah coming into the studio, um, because there was what some people were calling the precursor to a, a war, these drone strikes mm-hmm. yeah. that happened over the week. It was all very confusing when it happened. There was some explosions. We don't know where it's from. We don't know what's going on. But for me, the telltale sign was seven different places or whatever, whatever it was and munitions factories. And it seemed so sophisticated mm-hmm. That this wasn't some kids do. I mean, it, it takes a you know. I, I kind of assumed that it was Israel or some. So, you know, the, it's a very sophisticated attack on on Iran. So what did what what have we learned about this? Well, no one's really taken responsibility yet, so we still don't know. And I almost feel like it's still just as confusing. But um, just to kind of recap, like you said, there was a, a collection of events that took a, took place, and it all involved multiple explosions um, at <clears throat> various factories, various. Um, I guess, prominent locations in varying cities in Iran. Um, And uh, at least in regards to one of the events, or one of the explosions rather, the uh, defense ministry actually came out and made a statement. So in regards to the explosions, which was at a fire, explosion and fire at an ammunition factory in Esfahan, Esfahan, um, the ministry actually mentioned that it was due to small drone attacks and they had actually shot down said drones, Mm. but they didn't provide any further information about the drones or anything of, you know, I guess clarity, anything that would provide clarity on where these drones came from. And then today, actually, CNN reported on on this exact incident, um, but The way that their report came out was actually quite interesting, too, because they didn't point any fingers. They didn't really say, you know, anyone's taken responsibility or that they think that it's due to, you know, Israel or any other country for that matter. And in fact, they made it very clear that um, the Israeli Defense Force declined to comment Mm -hmm. and um, no U.S. spokespersons made any comments about it either. So it's still quite confusing, actually. Hmm. But I mean, who would it? I mean, who is it? We don't know. Finland? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, you know I, mean, I, I, I yeah, I guess we don't know. We, we don't, don't know. know. But I mean, targeted drone strikes? Mm-hmm. Well, there's on Persian Twitter, mm-hmm. there's uh, there's some ideas floating around mm-hmm. as well. That's I thought there was a report that it was Israel. No, uh, it's a and, false and that Israel report, had said it, it was. Seems. Oh, it's a false report? It's a okay. false report, it Then seems. I misspoke. Yeah, there's okay, no, right, there's right. no confirmation of that fact. Okay. And in fact, the IDF has not um, taken any responsibility okay. or accepted that. So as of right now, we it's we it's it's such a uh it's like the water crisis i mean it's such a testament to how much shit is going down in iran mm-hmm. uh that these things happen and they barely register yeah you know i mean you, you, this would be a major story not that it isn't a story mm-hmm. but you know explosions munitions factories being blown up i mean uh but there's just so much to talk about uh with respect to Iran, I feel like to a certain extent the Western media like just th- throws its hand in the air and goes, "Oh, well, that's another thing happening in Iran. What do we know?" You know. Yeah, so the- then you have to depend on sources inside Iran exactly. and the Iranian media, the state media, which is of course nonsense. And yeah, you- and I mean just to add to what you're saying, um, CNN only reported on the explosion and the fire in Esfahan. But as I was looking at you know the varying reports and looking through social media and things like that, there is actually uh, reports of incidents in Tabriz. Yeah. Um, 
in Des Foul, which I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes. Hey, man. Um, <laughs> Shout out to my people. <laughs> Des Foul. That's, um, uh, you know. You don't know Des yeah. Foul? I was just hoping uh, I was pronouncing it correctly. Wow. I do know, but Beautiful, yeah. hopeful, yeah. Des Foul. Come <laughs> on. My, the, the, who's the stop people are... are going to start picketing our show with your your ignorance about this. I was trying to make sure I was saying it right, actually. Um, and Somewhere between Afos and Obadon, near mm-hmm. near that area, is Desful. Okay. Right? See? Learn something new sure. today. And, um, and one of the other things I read about as was actually that there was reports of air raid sirens in a place called Nozhe Air Base, which, like you're saying, you know, there's so much coming, so much yeah. information, so much news coming out of Iran that we really don't know what's fact and fiction but you know to hear about something like that if in fact it is true that would be you know what my takeaway is my takeaway is uh completely devoid of knowing any of uh, the facts mm-hmm. uh, you know i i fully i i i'm i will issue the disclaimer that <laughs> i know nothing about what happened with these drone strikes my takeaway is there that that is an unstable country mm-hmm. there's volatile shit going on Absolutely. In Iran, you know, because that that is not business as usual. No, you know, you and and it comes in the midst of. I mean, think about how much is going on. Mm-hmm. You know, between the currency and the the economy and the water, the environmental stuff that we've been talking about, and the the protests and the 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 the, the, the demonstrations and the jailings and the executions and the. I mean, no shortage for sure. The the, the international condemnation and. Yeah, so uh, I wanted to. I don't know if you have it on your agenda to talk about Robert Malley. I do. Okay, <laughs> feels, feels like it was. I think it was at least two months ago that mm-hmm. I did the essay saying, you know, step aside, Robert Malley. Mm-hmm. Um, today I see some people saying that, uh, but uh, and I, I know there's other folks who've been saying it for a while now. But this guy, this is the special envoy for Iran. That was the Biden administration guy, That's right? right? Yeah. So this guy comes out today. I think what he was trying to say was we don't want to interfere, you know, we don't believe in imperialism or something. I mean, if that's but what, what he ca- was trying to say, he did a horrible job. Yeah, yeah because what it came it. off as uh, is we don't actually want regime change. I mean, yeah, short of actually saying that, yeah. I felt like that's the point he was trying to drive home. I mean, every chance he got, he kept on kind of, you know, advertising for diplomacy with the regime with the Iranian regime and I mean I can understand why people have asked for his resignation yeah. you know on the steps of on the heels of that yeah. interview um, because really it almost seemed like he was an apologist for the regime well he's not representing the interests of Iranians Absolutely around not. the world that's no, for sure uh, or Iranian Americans because mm-hmm. I mean who are the people who are looking for diplomacy with this regime right yeah. now I mean, really I mean uh, maybe a, a handful of Forgive me, but Nayak mm-hmm. related people still. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I mean, who would you know? Who would be? This is that that ship has sailed. Yeah. This is again the delta between where the community is at, where Iranians are at, mm-hmm. and where the international states people or, or whatever um, haven't caught up to that. Mm-hmm. Or more likely, they don't give a fuck. They don't want to. Yeah, yeah exactly. they want it. They, they it behooves them to 
you know, hedge their bets. Looks like the regime isn't going necessarily. Maybe it isn't. We should continue our, you know, and we have a lot of money to gain from Mm -hmm. the nuclear deal. What was really surprising for me with this interview, I mean, you know, for months now, we've been seeing that he's not, Mali, I mean, he's not representative of the Iranian people. And obviously, he's not trying to push an agenda that is on the same page as what the Iranian people want. But what was surprising to me is that he was so, I don't even know, you know, he was so he almost wanted to get the point across right. that he was cavalier. That he's not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at one point, I think um, he was asked specifically about the JCPOA. And I thought, you know, okay, he's going to try and maneuver his way out of the question, or he's going to try and say something that mm. could be interpreted. But no, very, very clear. He said, you know, he still pointed towards diplomacy. And he, I, in I, fact, I, but uh, th- th- that's got to be marching orders. I got to think that this guy is not acting. I mean, he's not, he's not some rogue. I mean, even if it was. I, I, I think that there's a conversation that's been had with the administration mm-hmm. and that he's he's the fall guy, has to go out and say this. Yeah. And, you know, the conversation is, uh, we still want to do a deal with Iran. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely bigger than just him for sure. But I would have thought that, you know, someone who's, this wasn't his first interview for right. sure, right? I thought he would have answered in a more politically correct way, to so to speak. Yeah, but and after after a lot of double talk from mm-hmm. the administration, you, it's it's a it's kind of shocking. It is. It was yeah. very shocking the way it's delivered. I, that's why I don't know. If, I mean, if he'd come and said, you know, we're, you know, Iran, we we support the self determination of the Iranian people. You know, we're not going to launch an attack on Iran or something like that because we, but we'll do whatever we can to support the Iranian people's choice. But the way, but he said, we're not interested in regime change. Like some wording that literally sounds like we're happy for the mullahs to stay in power. I mean, the only thing that he said that could be, you know, somewhat politically correct and um, exactly maneuvering of a, a maneuvering answer was that he said that you know they are, that the U.S. is interested in the human rights aspect of things, but that they have to Thanks. compartmentalize. Yeah. So again, yeah. not what very a, helpful. But yeah, I mean, what a. But the, you know, here, here, here we are, right? Five months in, and this, and the guy from the president of um, Jason Burrell or uh, J- Jason? Jason Bourne, the, uh, Jason. Uh, the Bourne identity guy, whatever is it? What's the yeah. EU president's name? Jo- Joseph, Joseph Burrell. Burrell. Joseph yeah. Burrell. That was distortion humor. I'm intentionally don't want to say his name. <laughs> the, you know, these people, I mean, it's, 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 uh, we're seeing the real face of, mm-hmm. of some of the stuff. There's only, only so much you can, um, I, I I'm going to, put it to Nika Hang too because Nika Hang was one of the people who uh, Kosar who's coming up was one of the uh, people who you know he's been calling for the IRGC to be on the terrorist list in mm-hmm. Canada for years and this goes way back to the the Harper government in Canada mm-hmm. it's pre-2014 you know that they had put the motion forward to yeah. and still you know for all of the the flowery words from the the, the, the government of Canada mm-hmm. and for from you, you know countries in the EU, still that that equivocation, that hesitation is very it's telling. Yeah, and I mean, I think it was months ago where um, people were seeing the videos of Trudeau walking alongside you know protesters and things like that. And I think we actually talked about it on one of the shows. Of course, and we were saying that. You know, it's nice to see these videos, but in action, there's still so much missing, even in a country like Canada. Well, it's the equivalent of Robert Malley saying, we care about, mm-hmm. you know, it's how much do you care, really? Yeah, really. What Where's are you action? doing? You're not enforcing the sanctions that you have. You're not, mm-hmm. you're not, you know, interested in really seemingly hearing what the Iranian 
um, diaspora community is screaming yeah. to say, but please, you know, f- find a way to stop enabling this regime. Um, but Actually, that's something else that he said. He he pointed to the, the sanctions and said, well, you know, we have implemented a new set of sanctions as if that's some sort of, you know, help at this point. Hmm. Yeah, Robert Malley. Um, and in the meantime, okay, let me guess you, you're the other, the other, the third thing you're going to okay. talk about. Uh, the, 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 did, you, did you hear about this couple that was dancing? That's, that's my that third it? point, yeah, okay, that video. Oh, yeah. Well, the video actually came out, um, I think it was in November or at the end of October because the mm. couple was actually arrested in early November. That's and right. so for anyone who doesn't know about this video, which I'm sure many people have now shared it and it's gone viral yet again, but there's a video of a young couple dancing um, on a street in Tehran with the uh, Azadi Tower in the background. Mm-hmm. And it's very like, innocently dancing. Very innocently they're dancing. They're not twerking. It's no. not like a, you know, it's not a provocative dance. Not at all. And they're fully, you know, they're, they're fully dressed up and they're just doing, mm-hmm. it's, kind of a, it's kind of a lovely waltz or something. It is, you know, yeah. Yeah. And might I add that the couple is engaged. So even uh-huh. under the Islamic law or whatever you will, they're. I did not know that. Oh, they're no, they are. Okay, they're yeah. an actual engaged uh-huh. couple. So um, this video came out. They were arrested as a result of this video. And so what happened is that today um, they were given a sentence. And each of them was given 10 and a half years in prison for dancing on the street and for posting this video. Um, And aside from the 10 and a half year prison sentence, yeah, Yeah. it's absurd. Um, They were also told that they have a two-year ban on any sort of social media. And also, I think their passports were probably revoked because they're not allowed to leave the country for two years as well. How do you get a 10-year sentence and then the two years? Yeah, that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I I mean, if you're in prison for 10 and a half years. They they will bail out probably very soon. Oh, I see. Even even if they're out on bail, they can't go on social media or leave the country. Yeah. Uh, I told you, like, I don't know when, but it's a way of, like, uh, earning income for government to mm-hmm. put people in jail and then bail out. and have mm. Especially with the price of bail that we've been yeah. seeing. That's one of the tactics that the regime has been using recently is to put the bail amounts at such high increments. Astiyaj Hakiki, mm-hmm. I think is her name. Yep. She's uh, 21 years old. And Amir Mohammad Ahmadi. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is, uh, you know, I'm never going to stop saying this because I, I, we, we cannot, uh, ever stop being shocked by this kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, 10 years in jail for dancing in front. Of, I mean, it's like a, with your fiance, yeah, yeah, with your fiance innocently in front of the mm-hmm. Azadi tower. Yeah. Can you imagine? I can't. Can I just imagine? I can't get my head around it. No. I mean, can you Yeah. Can you imagine like if uh, like let's start a new country mm-hmm. <laughs> and let's start a, a law where uh, yeah. I mean it's so heartbreaking. It's so insane. It's so insane. We got Sabal coming in, and I mean, and Nico Hang. Every everybody on the show mm-hmm. has been, you know, arrested. I mean, it's a, uh, but I mean, you can't sing, you can't dance, you can't. What what is? <laughs> One of the things that I was actually um, reading about about this couple is that um, for the last three months, their families had been silenced in fear because it's been just three months of them not knowing what is going to happen yeah. to their to their kids. 
I mean, well, and also as as Hila Sadiqi was saying in that interview we did two or three weeks ago, um, you you know the, the families don't want to say something mm-hmm. in case that the, the, they might make the situation worse right. yeah, or exactly. you know so they're paralyzed. You can't even you can't even talk about this injustice. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's uh, yeah, it's really 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 dark stuff. Have you heard about the first concert that happened in Iran like last week? There, uh, there is a concert happening in Iran. So as I told you, it's uh, uh, like musician they um, they boycott the uh, concerts yeah. and they they. So there is a guy. Uh, uh, his name is I think Zanko something like that. <laughs> He went on stage and he only uh, has like seven or eight songs and he do whole the whole repertoire like twice <laughs> and the Vazir Ershad said that this is the best concert that happened. Wow. <laughs> but and the music you have to hear is like uh, horrible. Oh yes. Oh you should have pl- brought it for us. I've heard one <laughs> of his songs actually. Masalan room. That's zoom that's the one. <laughs> what 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 is it? It's oh my gosh. So he, he he's like a state sanctioned uh like what kind of music is it? It's like like rock? No, no. it's oh. meant to be kind of like upbeat, poppy kind of, uh. right? I, I think most, at least the, what I've heard. The, the most cheesy way of Persian music, mm. you know. So yeah, yeah I, I saw Bob Ak, uh, I mean, he again on the weekend, and mm-hmm. he was echoing, I think, what you were saying, that, uh, that he, he said he hears from musicians in Iran all the time, that it's such such a dire situation, oh, yeah. uh, especially on the heels of COVID. Mm-hmm. Like, they're yes. just... Uh, yes. He told me that um, a friend of... A guy he knew who was kind of a virtuoso guitarist and had these... Had collected some guitars, like six... Of you know these, mm-hmm. I can't remember now exactly what it was, but he told me that the guy had called Bob and said that he only has one of them left because wow. he had to sell all his instruments because yeah. he doesn't have any money. Oh, that is so oh. sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're probably hearing this from a lot of people. Oh, outside. yeah, it's yeah. Really, yeah. Um, uh, talking about the arts community in Iran, um, we talked about it lot on the last show about the uh, the film festival that's going on in Fadge Iran. Film the Fadge Festival. Film Festival, yeah. Um, I saw reports of, and I his name escapes me right now, but he's one of the most prominent Iranian um, actors. Um, he's fairly old, and he, he actually put out a statement saying that um, he would not be attending, and that was, you know, unheard of for someone of his stature to not attend mm-hmm. this festival. But, I mean, we're seeing it across the board, so... All right. Well, let's get to our uh, uh, thank you, Pega. Thank you. Thank you, Shia. Let's um, uh, see if we can bring um, uh, Sabah in. My first guest here, let's go to our, our first guest. Our first guest is a singer and Sufi dancer who has captured public attention by singing a song that is um, uh, now widely shared. It's become an anthem of this revolution, as we said, sung at most demonstrations and rallies globally. Uh, take a listen to this. Oh, yes, I'm in a show. Hey, Shahrabi, oh, he should be. Hey, Mardome, 
one of the live performances of this piece that has now gone, it's become something of an iconic piece now in video. That's a Bizaram as Dinesh Shoma and the sounds of the powerful voice of Sabah Zameni. So Sabah moved to Canada from Iran just a few months ago. She studied traditional singing and music at the Conservatory of Music in Tehran. She released an album called John in 2018. Since the uprising, as you may know, she has been outspoken about the regime in Iran, has performed at demonstrations and rallies, and her videos online have received millions of views. She's also been part of the Canadian leg of the Shahi Najafi tour, performing alongside him and his band. She is riveting to watch, and right now, Sabah Zameni joins me in the Rook studio today. Hello. Hello, hello. I'm very happy to see you here. It's so nice to have you here in person. The last Thank time you. we did this was Zoom. Those were so short, here you right? are in the, in person and it's uh, it's fabulous. I, I have to say, first of all, I don't know if at a time of we say these two things to each other, but I mean, I feel like saying congratulations on how much um, attention your work uh, and your voice has gotten in the last few months. Um, does it feel that way? Does it feel like something I should congratulate you for? I was just thinking about this you mentioned right now. I, I'm not sure if it's a need to be congrats something, but because we're in the middle of very strange situation, but thank you so much. Um, about Bizaramas Dinishamu. I didn't know that it goes viral like yeah. this, but. And normally for an artist yeah. to get millions of views is a great thing. Yeah, uh, it's in this moment, it's hard to, especially as an Iranian, you don't want to be seen celebrating your own uh, um, success. But to tell me a little bit about, and Sabajan, we've agreed that you'll speak English and Persian, whatever yeah, uh, feels okay. comfortable to a certain extent if you need sure. to. But tell me what the last few months have been like for you, both in terms of your relationship to what's happening in Iran with the revolution and the prominence that you've had in terms of your music and your voice being out there. Mm -hmm. So everybody knows about these tough situation in Iran. Um, each of us try to do something about these strange days. Uh, they go so fast. And uh, one of these days, um, I was so angry. I was frustrated about something, about um, a really bad news about Kian P. Falek. And uh, I was, I, I, I'm, I remember, I was so angry. There was a drum set in my place and uh, I was just um, start to sing, started to sing Bizaram as Dineshoma. I've, I've listened it somewhere mm. so randomly on Instagram, and uh, it sounds so, you know, um, so, so special to me. Mm. So I was thinking, I need to sing these kind of words right now, just right now. And I started to sing, and I, there was a source of energy, source of anger, but it helps. Mm. So I just sang it, I posted it on my Instagram and boom, like tomorrow, I was like, oh, what's happening here? Yeah. People, right. And it, it was, was just like, your voice and a drum. Yeah, yeah. Just, just voice and drum. It, that was so, 
all of a sudden came all of a sudden and uh, I, I realized the other day the next day I realized people really needed these kind of words mm. they like they're so serious this time it's like they're angry they yeah. full of you know um, complicated energies they don't know what what goes to happen mm-hmm. this time and that everything was so complicated and that's it there's a there's a defiance there is an anger to this song that if i contrast it for example to bad all yeah mm-hmm. the, the the great sherbian song you know that the, the, it that is passionate but it's almost more mournful um this is um when watching you sing and perform it it's very powerful mm-hmm. and it and I, and i can feel you channeling that anger that you felt and i'm sure that's part of why it's resonated so much and got the millions of views. I, I want to ask you a bit about this piece because for those of us who grew up in the diaspora, it's new to me, but I know for many Iranians uh, inside Iran and around the world, they knew it immediately mm-hmm. or they 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 could um, they were familiar with it somehow. What tell me a bit about this piece. This where did this originate from and how did you first find it? First of all, um, let me let me tell you something about um, all day we mention some power, some hidden power in all the women all mm. around the world, mm-hmm. even in Iran, especially in Iran. And to me, people need that kind of power in some voice to shout and say mm. they word and uh, say they words and uh, you know, just just spread it out, like, like people need some woman voice to mm. say these kind of things bravely i'm not saying i'm brave i'm the brave one but uh, i was so angry that's mm-hmm. it that's that's mm-hmm. that's so simple <laughs> but um after this i searched it up about and i found a video that was belonged to some ritual show uh, for Muharram, mm-hmm. it's like a festival, but uh, it's kind of complicated. But never mind. And I searched it up. Um, they filmed it uh, in in a place in Yazd city in Iran, and the very particular piece of this was the singer uh, lead people to to respond him. Mm-hmm. And he it's was a call like, and response yeah, kind call of, yeah, and respond. Yeah. And every everything was so arranged, like like people know about the words, people mm-hmm. know about the rhymes, people knew about everything. And uh, that was so. Uh, I was so grateful to could do that like all by my, my own, and uh, that was so beautiful. And because of the poem, because of the words. Uh, the poet one, the the, uh, the man who uh, said, you know, all those words, banned from you know doing his work. The writer of uh, this, a in writer yes, of yeah, this, yeah, yeah in that, uh, yes, and the singer as well. Oh, and um, they they pushed them like on a pressure, mm-hmm. and they questioning them all over, and uh, they like, okay, we quit. 
and uh, that was so these kind of things so so dangerous in Iran you know sure these you know these words but can I so ask you the, the, this song I mean uh, if I Google translate it uh -huh. uh, which I've done um, the a lot of it is uh, I hate your religion mm -hmm. it's it's an angry song directed at religion mm -hmm. But it's is it is it an in terms of the way you've interpreted it and how it's resonating? Would you describe it as an anti-religion song or an anti-Islamic Republic piece, or mm -hmm. how are we supposed to interpret that? The thing is, um, I realize that there is not not nothing disrespectful, um, you know, thing to to any religions, mm. but uh, it's kind of it's kind of said. I hate the way you worship God. Mm. Your God your, is your not our God. Your interpretation of yeah. quote unquote Islam, right? Yeah, exactly. Your God is not ours. Like we're first of all are human. We need love. We need power inside. We need everything, and we can use, uh, you know, Islamic things to you know, live our life. Mm. It's enough. This is it. It's not not all the things around the world about the our religion. Mm -hmm. It's not a big deal to, you know, change our life, change our uh, point of view to, you know, to something uh, not necessary. Saba, do you feel like um, when you gain so many followers or so much gets get so much attention your audience has, has grown and and the, these millions of views and the, uh, so much interest do you feel a responsibility now that you didn't maybe feel a few months ago I mean do you feel somehow like you have to um, keep responding to what's what's going on that, oh, yeah. that now you have a, a much bigger platform mm -hmm. um, tell me about that yeah a hundred person, yeah, and at now it's goes harder. Is for it me. pressure? Not not anything like pressure, but um, yeah, I feel some responsibility um, now more than before. Uh, I'm I'm pretty aware of all artists has their own responsibility to you know, um, use their art as a tool mm -hmm. to say um, to say what's going on in that that particular time. Mm -hmm. um, and when something I didn't experience that before. I, I experienced many of, you know, performances and concerts and, you know, and many of these kind of things. But mm -hmm. That that one is so um, different. What's that? What what did you um, experience? As I mentioned, I woke up the, mm -hmm. uh, the next day mm -hmm. and I faced with too many messages, <laughs> too many followers, too many likes and shares and blah blah blah. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, now it's more serious than yesterday. Mm -hmm. I should do something to do not disappoint mm. uh, people mm -hmm. who um, this is kind of hard because people you know 
everybody wants something different right. from you and they think you're a leader now <laughs> right, and right. Uh, <laughs> you're right, not right. a leader you just you just they have expectations of yeah you just say your probably who your you should be supporting and what you should be yeah. saying and yeah and i'm seeing that it's kind of um uh i don't know how can i say that but try to say it persian uh, persian it's hard to <laughs> to say the Persian too. <laughs> okay. Um, وقتی که یه روز می‌بینی که برای من هیچ وقت famous شدن به معنی این نبوده که تعداد زیادی آدمی از فردا تو رو دوست داشته باشن. چون این it comes one day and it can go the next day. easily and نمیخوام که اینجور باشه چون با این aim که من میخوام این موزیک رو بذارم برای اینکه دیده بشم people can see me and see how can I sing powerful and how can I you know I'm out of Iran now I'm brave enough to you know shout And, uh, نه این برای این نبود فقط میخواستم که یک خشمی رو از ته دل فریاد بزنم که بعد فهمیدم این فریاد فریاد خیلی های دیگه هست <تصفيق> که دوست دارن بشنونش فریادش بزنم و خب همین میخواستم بپرسم از اینا که message فرستادم به شما when you got all these messages and, and, and you continue to I'm sure tell me about something that's that's stuck out to you or something that's moved, really moved you in terms of what you've heard from people uh, maybe even people inside Iran um, who have found inspiration in, in what you've done mm-hmm. in your work um, does anything come to mind in particular somebody's message or somebody somebody that reached out to you uh, immediately after I, I posted in on my Instagram I found some YouTube video they mixed my video with um, my, my, uh, my some of my pictures and my videos and they uh, the she they arrested her after just like Shervin Hajipur and uh, we so sad about this we always we disappointed why they doing this and it was like hello I'm in Canada <laughs> they, they can't do that anymore and um, they couldn't do nothing you know at the end of the day and um, Uh, well, I, mean, I, I, I imagine you heard from a lot of young women. That's what I'm imagining. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Did you hear from a lot of young women in Iran who just go, thank you, you know, or you're my inspiration or something like that? Yeah. Most of them say thank you to me uh, because um, th- this song helps them to, you know, raise, raise up. raise their voice mm. and you know stand up for 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 the other day for the next day and with 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 um you know hope and power and it uh, they they 
listen to this repeatedly all day, all night, and uh, they can stop to listen to this. They they sing with me all day. They they shout in their home or they played in in on the street and everywhere. And there was so. And, and, and I s saw a couples of video all around the world, like USA, like S S uh, uh, Spain, like Italy, mm -hmm. and all around the world. They play in, in their protests. Uh, yeah. They play my song and everybody started to sing yeah. it. And that was a sign for me um, to, so what should, what should I do now? <laughs> what should I sing now? Mm. I, I maybe, um, I should quit jazz or, or quit blues or sweat. But uh, I was like, oh, oh, what should I do now? And then uh, Shahin Najafi recommended me to sing this song to in his concert. And I was like, okay, that will be so good. Uh, I can, you know, I was going to ask you about the, yeah. the, the relationship with Shaheen uh, and, and you because you've done a few shows now. Uh, mm -hmm. Right and and uh, did you guys know each other before? Uh, no, one of my friend in USA, Manu Arifikat Bishahin, he approached me and um, you must have been aware of him, his music, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. yeah. I loved his music uh -huh. always, his words and the, all uh -huh. the you know, um, his his mind actually. I okay. love his mind and. Um, yeah, but um, before I published this video, he he was came to me uh, and uh, asked me if I can, you know, um, sing with him in his his tour. And then when I published it and all this happened, he was like, "Wait a minute, we can do something with it. Can you improvise something?" on it I was for sure like, yeah let me do it um, and I, I was started we um the genre was rock which mm -hmm. which was so helpful for these words you can you know um, spread all your any any feelings in you mm. you can uh, and you could um, yeah we just we just performance it and and oh, the uh, interesting thing was all the people in uh, in concert, they know the words. Of course. They yeah. started to, you know, <laughs> hey, Sabo, start to sing Bizarra Mazdini Shoma once again, once again. Oh, please. Once. And it was like, you know, that was really kalbam khushhal mishad. Vahanuz ham mishaz in atafak. But nothing changed in my heart deep down in my mm -hmm. heart about the thing is happening in yes. Iran right yes. now. It's not about me to mm. go viral or mm -hmm. goes famous. It's well, about the revolution. That's good. That's a good segue because before I, we're going to get to a, a song that um, you're, you're graciously going to actually perform here in the studio. Mm. But, but uh, before we go there, I was going to ask you actually whether you, I mean, it's obviously been uh, a good few months in terms of uh, the recognition you've received, etc. Do you 
and there, you had to leave for obvious reasons. I mean, being jailed for not being able to even do your your craft, your your being be the singer that you are in Iran. Um, do you still feel though that on some level, maybe not guilty, but do you feel on some level like you wish you were there? You wish you were in Iran, helping. I don't know on the front lines, protesting, doing what you could. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, I was telling my mom. Fortunately, I'm here, mom. <laughs> if I was there now, now cast that never should. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. It was, you still have has that challenge um, with me going to jail again and again yeah. and again, yeah. and it, it goes. Everything goes uh, goes worst after yes yes if if i wear her it there and uh, i i wish i could uh be there but it was so scary too yeah, yeah. to me just thinking about it remind me all those days yeah uh came to me that day but yeah i really wish i could be there you know with my brothers and sisters fighting for their, you know. Well, so. you'd be no good to uh, any of us uh, in jail. We don't want you there in, in jail and silenced. And so um, you're, you, what you're doing is very powerful and, and I'm grateful that you're in uh, Canada and Toronto so that you're able to do that. Um, and I'm so grateful that you're here in the studio. So now we've talked about, uh, you're gonna, uh, actually perform a song for us in the studio which is fa fantastic and i think shia and i are going to we've just kind of <laughs> it's oh, going to be well, a, so an improvisation but we're yeah. gonna we're gonna uh shia is gonna get behind, behind the piano and i'm gonna get behind the drums and we're gonna nice. try so and uh, support you um not that you need us but the song is is actually a, a tune of yours that i love that uh, people can find on on spotify or on your platforms on your website uh it's called shadowless mm -hmm. tell us about this piece that you're about to sing okay uh i'm gonna say this in farsi yes. shadowless or bisayegi uh yeruzi shuru shud ke man qarar bud ba hila sedigi re instagram live dashte bashim ba ham dige azam khaste bud ke yek ahangi az ahangai khodam یا ایمپروویز انتخاب داشته باشم که بخونم توی اون برنامه شب شعر بود در واقع من فقط یه ویدیوی خیلی رندوملی پیدا کردم که فقط اینسترومنتال بود و پیانو نواخته می شد شروع کردم یکی از شعرهای سایه هوشنگ ابتحاج شاعر مورد علاقم رو روش خوندم اون روزها من خیلی به اون کلمات نیاز داشتم چون دقیقا وسط یک چلنج خیلی بزرگی بودم توی زندگیم که میدونستم به زودی از زندان حکمی برام میاد ام. که دوباره باید برم کی بود؟ two years ago oh, okay. um, before I go to the jail again oh. um, فقط خوندم شروع کردم به خوندن و احساس کردم در کنار اون قمنگیز بودن آهنگ یک حس قدرت و امیدواری و 
یه کورسوی امیدی تهش داری میبینی که انگار که تو رو نگه میداره بالا انگار بوستاپت میکنه مم. انگار که داره بهت میگه در این سرای بی کسی کسی به در نمیزند ولی تو میدونی که بالاخره به در میزند میدونی که ته این سرای بی کسی چیزی وجود داره که خیلی ارزشش بیشتر از این حزنیه که تو الان در دلت داری قراره که یک درس بزرگی بگیری از توی این ناکامی ها و بعد من شروع کردم به خوندن شروع کردم برای هیلا خوندم هیلا خیلی خوشش اومد از اون بر پدرم اومد توی اتاق و به هم گفتش که اینی که خوندی آهنگ کی بود گفتم که خودم خوندم همین الان چیزش کردم گفت میتونی یه بار دیگه بخونی گفتم آره ولی نمیتونم همونجوری بخونم قاعدتا فرق میکن گفت بخون و ضبطش کن ضبطش کردم و یک ماه بعد از یکی از دوستام خواستم خواستم که ارنجش بکنه و شروع شد بیسایگی یکی دیگه دلایلی که اسمشو گذاشتم شادولس اور بیسایگی یو نو artistic name of Hushang uh, Ebtahaj was Saye mm. and uh, I was thinking I'm, I'm, oh my god I love him so much I can I never know if I can handle it if I if uh, someday he's gone or not mm. uh, but Bisayegi it belongs to someday Saye diga nist va un qamam tu delam bud اینجوری شد که it burns okay well let's let's do this um, live in the Rook studio uh, this is Saba Zameni so uh, let me get behind the drums Shai come on in here <laughs> are you sure she sings very well I know I know well. the, the only problem <laughs> so. with this piece is that you and I are going to ruin it <laughs> but, uh, but we'll try our, our best and this is um, uh, Saba Zameni performing the piece Shadowless here in the Rook studio. Give us one second, we'll sure. set up. Ne 
در انتظار قبار بی در کس شبی چونی سپید سر نمیزند ای دل خراب من دیگر خراب تر نمیشود که خنجر قمت هزین خرابتر نمیزند نسایه دارم و نبر بیفکنندم و سزاست اگر نبر درخت تر کسی تبر نمیزند نمیزند کسی تبر نمیزند Was, um, Thank you for joining us. That, that was, was, yeah, joining us. Yeah. We, we joined you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you guys joining you are me. You're amazing. Yeah, thank you. That was really, really, um, I was mesmerized listening to your voice. I, I, I could, you know, close yeah. my eyes and start playing there. Thank you so much that was for one performing. That was one of the best versions that I've ever performed oh, this song that's one have you ever performed it maybe it's the only version just that's just right. <laughs> <laughs> with the original backing track that's not, not uh sabo zameni and the song uh shadowless um shy on piano there thank you that was uh, it, thank you for being here thank you for the work you're doing and thank you for thank you. being as um honest and and as giving as you are thank you so much thank nice to so see you in person thank you me too
This is Rook, episode 234. Can a free Iran set a new standard for unity? Let's go to Washington, D.C. For, for my next guest. And someone I'm quite honored to say is one of our regulars at this point here on Rook. He's been joining us with some consistency through the current uprising in Iran. Nikohang Kosar is a distinguished Iranian-Canadian cartoonist, journalist, and blogger. Uh, besides his famous cartooning and commentary in the past, Nikohang is very much known these days amongst Iranians for his regular presence on Iran International, BBC Persian, and Radio Faradah. He also runs a website called abongoniran.org, which covers Iran's water crisis. He's going to join me by Zoom here, so you might hear my audio change a little bit because I'm I'm going to be in Zoom audio with Nico Hang. Nico Hang Kosar joins me from Washington, D.C. right now. Hello, sir. Hi, Jian. Nice to be with you on this beautiful day. Oh, is it a beautiful day in Washington? It is. It oh, is. Well, it's not not as beautiful here in gray and snowy Toronto, but uh, I'll take your word for it. For listen, it's always a pleasure to have you on this show and, and take your, your insights. Uh, I do want to point something out because you've been public about it recently. And before we get into talk of Iran, um, uh, some of us know you've been dealing with fibromyalgia for some time now, which is. Um, as, as I've always known in a chronic disorder that causes pain and tenderness throughout your body, it, it can lead to fatigue and trouble sleeping. Um, you have been talking about this publicly, but recently, how are you doing? Not so good. I've been um, tolerating a number of flare-ups in the past few days, and I have to add IBS. That's also something that's uh, really painful and um I was telling a friend the other day, he wanted to um, plan so we could meet after a while. And I told him, look, two days out of seven in the week, I'm fighting with fibromyalgia. Two days I'm fighting with IBS and two days I have both of them. So there's just one day, but it doesn't, I don't know which day of the week is that, that I don't have either of these two. But um, I'm blessed that... um, Although I have all these uh, painful situations, I'm still able to work. I'm still able to read. I'm still able to communicate. Sometimes the memory fog kills. Sometimes, like right now, I'm seeing two of you, not just one. So this is the double vision I get. But uh, still, I'm talking to you, and I think I can understand what I'm talking about. So that's good. Yeah, you sound very lucid. I mean, this might seem, I'm sure this is a naive question, but does stress, I mean, if you were upset or heartbroken or dealing, you know, emotionally with, say, the situation in Iran, does that amplify the pain of fibromyalgia? It it does. It does. There there are lots of triggers that actually um, start the, initiate the uh, flare up. And one of them is stress. And, um, as a journalist, I'm always monitoring the situation. I'm talking to people inside the country. I have to review all the most of the reports that I get about the water situation, about drought, about rain. And it's painful. It's, it's honestly painful. And you understand that so many people are um, having miserable lives because of the stupidity of the leadership. Mm-hmm. And the bad strategies that they have held up all these years, the, the regulations do not work. And the parliament is actually 
breaking the law continuously and doesn't care for the environment. We have 411 projects that lack environmental assessments and environmental permits that are being approved by the parliament. And parliament by that is actually acting against uh, Article 50 of the Constitution of the Islamic Republic. So you see, uh, you have a lot of criminals approving projects for the benefit of a few. Well, now that I've, I've learned that um, dealing with this stuff um, makes your pain even greater, here we go into a conversation about atrocities in Iran. Um, so you'll you'll forgive me. I, I, but I'll, I'll, we'll, no, no, no. Go on. Go on. Um, let, let, let's start with water. I mean, one of the nice things I was saying earlier in the show about having you on is I feel like you know, you, you've got your, your finger on the, the pulse of so much of what's happening usually that I can ask you about a number of different things, which I'm going to try to do today. But water is your area of study. Um, and you've been focusing on the water supply crisis in Iran for some time. We've had you on to talk about it in depth before, along with other folks like Kaveh Madani. What, what, what is the latest on this situation? Or, or I suppose more specifically, how has the percolating revolution of the last five months in Iran and the focus of the regime on that affected the addressing of the water situation? Look, for a few months, um, the media was totally focused on the unrest, on the demonstrations, the arrests, rightfully so. But the problem is um, the water uh, crisis is worsening. Um it's not just about the little rain we're receiving. It's also about managing the water we have. So it's not just supplying water, but how much water do we consume? And a lot of water is consumed in the agricultural sector. Uh, we have bad irrigation policies. We have we choose the bad seeds that consume more water. We, we're not supposed to produce uh, water-consuming products in an arid land like Iran, we have to produce, let's say, the ones that you use less water, but you get more, let's say, valuable products and sell them, export them, then import cheaper um, cereal, like, let's say, wheat, but um, don't waste the water on them. That's the, that's the important factor. But because of the regime's bad policies and uh, the sanctions, that are imposed on the Islamic Republic because of its bad policies, uh, people will suffer. So the fact is, the fact of the matter is that, look, um, for thousands of years, Iranians knew how to consume water, how to manage what their water resources. We had kanats, we had different types of uh, irrigation that worked out very well. And even um, in the, let's say, Andalusia, they were practicing uh, those types of irrigation methods. And some of them were even uh, exported to the new land, America. You can, and when you go to New Mexico or the Colorado Plateau, you see the uh, irrigation type called acequia. It's yeah. originally coming from the Middle East. Well, the, there's a, there, there, is a, there is an ongoing irony with the water crisis situation in Iran, the water bankruptcy situation, because... Uh, I always remember, you know, one of the things, one of the great discoveries, one of the great inventions of of our Iranian past was the water supply system, right? Yeah, and it was uh, it was sustainable. 
And but in the last 70 years, we have lost our way. And uh, instead of caring for the water, we wasted lots of water. And in the last uh, mainly three decades, we have uh, destroyed a lot of our groundwater resources all around the country and the lands are subsiding. And when the land subsides, you have uh, less volume under the ground to store water. So uh, desertification is a result of that. Uh, you know, as you know, we call the desert Biaban in Persian, but originally it comes from a waterless situation, Biaban, without having uh, la lack of water, water being waterless. So this is what the regime has done in the last few decades. And um, I'm sorry to say that uh, uh, because of uh, little education on this side about water resources, about natural resources, about the importance of uh, water conservation, uh, many people inside our country have not been aware of what has been happening and they have been living in a bubble. And right now they don't know why there are so many uh, um, people migrating from rural areas to city margins and shanty towns. And they don't know why the consumption rate is so high. So it's Nick, when you say it's getting worse, I mean, it was a couple of years ago, I suppose, or maybe a year and a half ago or something that we had those big demonstrations when we heard about the dire situation in, in um, Khuzestan and the, the water crisis, et cetera. Are you saying it's as bad or worse than it was then even? It, it is worse. Look, the population is no less. The consumption is no less. Uh, we have less snow in many parts of, in many, on many peaks. So that means less water in the major dams that are connected to those basins. And then um, the, whenever there's not enough water in the dams, the government uh, actually depletes the aquifers and pulls out lots of groundwater because they need to satisfy part of the population. And things don't work like that. And it's like a domino effect. And it will affect many parts of the country because of this bad way of um, managing water resources. It's really, um, it's quite horrifying really, because, you, you know, as, as you said in the beginning, I mean, we are so focused correctly. So on executions or, you know, people being rounded up or shot out in the streets and mm -hmm. kids dying, et cetera, um, that, uh, some of these other issues, um, have been pushed or under the rug or to the side for now. And yet these are, May, whether it's the currency crisis or the economy or the water supply crisis, these are major, major issues. And one of the things that kind of breaks my heart is that there's there's a fair bit of, you know, while we're heartbroken, there's a fair bit of of uh, excitement or or optimism or promise of what can you know a new Iran and new leadership and the end of this regime. But um, but the the reality is that I almost hate to even say, but when you talk about a situation like this water supply crisis, this is there's no way to fix this overnight, right? I mean, a, a, no. even a free democratic ideal to regime tomorrow, you know, the version of Iran that we all want tomorrow, is not going to be able to undo this um, without. It, it actually takes time and lots of effort, Jian. Uh, but let me tell you something. I was reading this report last week that, that because of Tehran's air pollution, uh, 45,000 people die each and every year. That means if the government is in charge of managing the air quality, 
based on the Iranian constitution, 45,000 people are murdered because of bad pollution policies, bad in air act. We have air law from, I think, two, uh, 2017. But nothing has happened, and it's getting worse. So we talk about, let's say, the people who have lost their lives in the 2022 unrest, and we cry for them. We mourn their losses. But look, 45,000 individuals die each and every year because of polluted air in Tehran, if that's true. It's, it's a report, so I'm not sure... Uh, is it more than this or less? But let's say 45,000 based on what they're saying. And we miss to note that how important this is. And it's and we have thousands of people in different cities like Iraq, Isfahan, and other industrial cities that are dying because of uh, bad fuel, uh, about, let's say, uh, very tiny particles that enter their lungs, and so many other things. We have water contamination in so many parts of the country because of uh, using bad fertilizers and other, and other stuff. Look, Iran has to be studied because of the effects of bad policies that have turned the whole situation into an environmental injustice. We have to fight for environmental justice and the politicians, the ones who are fighting for unity or the ones who want to separate this part or another part of the country. Look, they don't care for the environment. They don't care for. But, that, but that's I mean, if again, if I were to ask a question that probably sounds ridiculous, but is caring about the environment somehow un-Islamic? I mean, if you're the Islamic Republic, does that mean that you're, you, you know, I mean, what, what part of, this is not the hijab now, what part of trying to run a country as this, this regime does is not caring about pollution or water? Look, the, the, the fact is that um, you, can, you can exploit natural resources to gain money. And the IRGC and its partners are doing so. So a very small portion of the population is making money out of uh, misusing natural resources. And not that the rest of the world is any sort of paragon of excellence when it comes to the environment. Mm. There's countries all over the place that are they're doing no. it, but it. But it is a it is a dire a concern in in Iran, and it's and um, it it you, you know every time you you turn a corner with this re regime, if it's not the suppression of of basic rights, it's something like this where you sort of go, you know, how many times can we look at this and 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 realize how atrocious this situation is um, in this country? On the weekend, a 5.9 magnitude earthquake hit the city of Khoi, which is the um, west uh, in the west Azerbaijan province in northwest Iran. Um, that was Saturday night, I think. You've said that the effects of this earthquake um, may not entirely be unrelated to the water supply crisis as well. How, how do we draw the link between those two? Um, there's been this talk in the past few years that. Um, depleting uh, aquifers changes the weight of the top layers of the tectonic blocks 
and it can help trigger um, active faults in some places. The stress and strain change, the the usual norms change, and it and uh, it can have a trigger effect. Uh, uh, scientists have been studying this in California, where um, there's been lots of uh, groundwater misuse and they have depleted so many of the aquifers over there and last um i think it was uh, about 10 days ago after the first um earthquake in hoi in january because hoi has been um experiencing lots of earthquakes it's a very uh, active zone so after the first earthquake one of my um classmates who's who, who is now a uh, very famous seismologist in Iran and runs a uh, uh, major research institute, he said that we have to consider this fact that um, the depletion of water and also um, the disappearance in a way of Lake Urumia is having a major, could have a major effect in triggering these earthquakes. So this is a factor we have to consider. And uh, because we have lots of active faults in many parts of the country where people are actually um, living and using water and many of the aquifers, the groundwater resources have been uh, overexploited. This could happen in those sections. And the other thing is that when wherever you have um, groundwater depletion, you have land subsidence and land subsidence has negative effects on on um, your buildings, on your homes, and you you get a lot of lots of cracks in in the whole structure. So that actually weakens the structure of the homes of ordinary people who don't have enough money to make stronger homes, to build, um, let's say, um, homes that could resist the earthquakes in those regions. So you have a silent earthquake called um, land subsidence. And then when you get the major earthquake, many people lose their lives and their homes because of that. So in a way, many of these things are connected, but we don't talk about them. So although, although in general, Iran is in an earthquake um, risk zone, right? I mean, it's a, it's, I mean, I remember, I always remember Tehran is in at risk of potential earthquakes, right? It is. And look, earthquake is a natural phenomenon. We are the, the the homes that we build, the structures that we build in seismic zones is the unnatural thing to do. Hmm. So first of all, we don't build uh, the right structures. And then we overpopulate these seismic um, parts of the country. And we think that we're doing a good job expanding the cities. In 1989, when Rafsanjani became the president and he appointed Karbas Chi to become the mayor of Tehran, many were saying, oh, Tehran is going to be a beautiful city. But some people told him that, look, Tehran is not in a very good situation. An overpopulation of this city and this town is not going to be good news because we're awaiting a very powerful, a major earthquake in the future, and the um, a group of Japanese um, scientists actually worked with Iranian scientists in the 90s, and their predictions are really uh, scary. That if one of the faults in southeastern Tehran, in the Ray area, 
becomes active again, we could possibly even see around a million casualties. And that's not something to uh, ignore. So we have three major faults near Tehran, the Northern Tehran Fault, the Ray Fault, and the Fasham Fault. And these are really powerful faults. And we are seeing um, very minor earthquakes once in a while. But when we get a major earthquake, unfortunately, uh, we will see a lot of victims. And that's really sad. And there's been word that there's these, um, when it comes to earthquakes now, in some parts of the world, they're using their state-sponsored alerts that people can get on their phones. Um, but I'm, I'm presuming that we, they don't have that. We don't have that in Iran. No, we don't have it in Iran. Right now, I, I guess it was um, China who uh, that was uh, working on these technologies. People had applications on their phones that would alert them um, right when there was uh, something happening under the ground. So they knew in how many seconds in different areas based on your GPS locators, you would feel the tremor. So it would warn you and you had a few seconds to save yourself. So that's something that uh, saved lots of lives in different parts of China. But in Hoi, in other parts, like in uh, in the province of Kermanshah a couple of years ago, where we had um, two major earthquakes in uh, two continuous years, so many people died without being alerted. So technology could help us, but we're not using it. Let me, um, Nikhang, move to um, um, a couple of other things that have been at the top of people's minds uh, as this uh, uprising continues in Iran and the revolution and the aspirations and desperations that come along with that. Um, you, your focus is not always just in the environment. Uh, you're a journalist. You've been a longtime commentator, blogger, etc., and you're there in D.C. I know you've been attending um, demonstrations there. What What do you make of the... Uh, intensifying desire in some circles uh, in the diaspora to want to appoint a leader to uh, or have a leader to lead Iranians through a transition period. And and this endorsement campaign we saw for Reza Pahlavi and and uh, calls for a coalition as well, etc. Do you think that these campaigns have been effective and or are necessary? Um, I have to say one thing that I uh, respect Princess Al-Pahlavi very much. He's one of the few people who um, understands the environmental situation in Iran. But I should add that these campaigns have not created a united coalition. There has been... Not yet, anyway. What? Not yet, anyway, yeah. Not yet, no. And the, the thing is... Uh, um, an individual started this campaign without um, actually talking to other people. He did it on his own. So, but I I don't believe that he meant to harm the activities that could have taken place. But it didn't have a really good effect, to my knowledge and understanding. Um, why is that? Why is it not having? Is it because it becomes a a distraction? Now we're debating who's a good leader and not, instead of focusing on the regime. Or what? 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 What is the? Why does it not? I think it was that? it was polarizing. One thing it was polarizing, and two, um, 
in a democracy, you don't force people to approve somebody or disapprove that person. People were pushing individuals to um, join the Reza Pahlavi movement, if, if there is a Reza Pahlavi movement. But the other thing is that Reza Pahlavi didn't ask for no. any support to become a leader. He said that, look, I, I can be your, in a way, I, I don't want to say your attorney, your lawyer, some, your representative. And let's say talks with different leaders. I don't seek power. He mentioned that. But uh, in in the Iranian diaspora, you are either with the guy or against the guy. That's one big problem. And the other thing is that some uh, people who have been after separating parts of Iran in the last few decades and were silent became louder. Although uh, there's a very small portion of these individuals, but they, they became much louder. And this caused um, some reactions in social media. But the, one other thing I should add, Jian, is that many of us Iranians are couch activists. Hmm. And the people in Iran are the ones who went to the streets and fought and really in person supported uh, the families of people like Kian Pir Falak or Mahsa Jina Amini and others who were victims of the regime's brutality. But we in we who are, who are living in peaceful communities in countries like the United States, in Canada, in Europe, are just are just sitting on our couches with our laptops or our cell phones and then fighting each other without no without any consequences. Yeah. So I think one big problem is us. One. Two, um, we don't have, um, we really don't know what's happening on the ground in many parts of the country. We're not well connected. And some people inside the country believe that we do not understand them um, in a way they should be understood. So we are the ones who have to work harder and we have to serve the people inside the country. Why are we supposed to choose a leader for them? They are the people who are fighting the regime. So we're just only supposed to support them. And Reza Pahlavi didn't want to become a leader. He wanted to just help them. Yeah. But the fact is other groups who uh, want a, a share of the whole cake or the power structure in the future are using their uh, stooges to messing up the situation. And I don't like it. And let's not pin all this on Reza Pahlavi. I find that the, the ardent supporters of different sort of prominent folks tend to sometimes be quite intolerant of some of the others. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it leads to this, this debate. Although uh, having said all that you've said, and I totally respect and understand it, I'm also sympathetic to those people out there who, you know, are aching for some sort of common voice 
that we can, uh, and I mean, in a moment, I'm going to ask you about uh, the EU and the, and Canada and the still not having IRGC on the uh, terrorist list, but, you know, to have some common voice, to have some common representatives or representative even that, that is speaking uh, to these uh, institutions, uh, um, whether in the diaspora or, or, or not, um, that, uh, rep- is a representative of the common um, sentiment amongst the Iranians. And we know that that's difficult to do from within Iran. So, you know, the argument becomes it has to be somebody from outside. And so I'm sympathetic to all of that. You know, like it, we, we, you know, the, uh, people are tired of, of, of not having, uh, not being able to do this in a more unified voice when we're speaking to the rest of the world, you know. No, look, the fact is, if people want to serve the public inside the country, people who have a voice outside of the borders of Iran, they're welcome. Look, if different individuals meet with different politicians, not uh, for their personal gain, but to actually pass the baton, and uh, give a voice to the people inside the country, that's great. But look, one important factor is that there's been always the talk that some figures are actually using the situation to gain fame and use it in the future of the Iran to become powerful individuals. Like some some compare them to Aung San Suu Kyi, mm. who was supported and then became a leader in in Myanmar. But then we saw what happened to a, a portion of the country sure. whose rights were um, actually abused, sure. the weaker part of the country, of the population. But the, the, the important fact is that giving voice to the voiceless should be a mission of anyone who has a voice outside and has connections. And these voices can assist the people in in the country without bringing up things that destroy the any possible unity. Mm. So I think one, um, I should say, the interview with the um, crown former crown prince of Iran by Manoto TV was divisive instead of bringing unity. And the campaign to start to endorse the crown prince didn't bring unity and caused divisions. So that's one thing. Um, We have to do lots of um, crisis control, Mm. damage control after that, but we don't have smart people to do that. So that's one problem. The second thing is that giving voice to the voiceless doesn't need to be announced each and every day that I'm here to give voice to you. No, you have to just do it. It reminds me of... uh, What's the name? This part in uh, Maverick. Don't think, just do. <laughs> but uh, let me just just to put an asterisk on this. That that um, first of all, I mean, just to make sure we're covering the bases, as you've said, Reza Pahlavi didn't start that campaign. In fact, no. every uh, everything, every all of the the evidence shows that he was actually quite. He and his f- folks around him were surprised by it, and sort of like, "Whoa, how do we? How are we supposed to deal with this?" Uh, and of course, you can't go and criticize three hundred thousand people who've signed for him or whatever. But it's a it's a delicate and weird situation. But the second thing is that, that there really is a lack of, as you said, nuance. I mean, if you actually read the petition itself, 
Uh, it's not saying uh, I want this guy to be the king and, you know, have unchecked power. And I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of a, Hey, we need a, let's find an adult in the room to help through the transition. I, I give my, but of course that gets somehow in the global Iranian community uh, version of broken telephone that becomes, you know, f- three, three days later becomes, do you, do you like this guy or not? And, and that's really not what the question was. Let me, let me move. Cause I, I I'm sensitive that I can't keep you forever. Let me move to, I, I, I discussed, I, I mentioned the, the EU and, and, and mm-hmm. Canada. And, you know, this is something that you've talked about for a long time about putting the IRGC on the terrorist list. And we go from broken telephone to the broken record here because we we keep talking about this. And for I guess to a certain extent, for some of us in the community, it seems like a no brainer. I mean, what's the what's the big deal? You know, I mean, this is it seems like an obvious thing to do. This is, and you still have the Canadian government. Uh, quite incredulously uh, dragging its feet on on you know a, a full uh, placing the IRGC on the terrorist list then you have the EU with uh, its president now coming out and saying well we need to, um, what was it that we need a, some some kind of legal decision that these uh, that the IRGC is a terrorist group before we can move forward i mean the most um, really um silly excuses to to not move ahead with doing something like this what is your take on what all this equivocation is about look um a few weeks ago um a friend on twitter sent me a link that it's a document from the government of canada and since 2010 uh, i should say july 22nd 2010 that this document has been registered. I'm just looking at it and I'll send it to you through special economic measures on Iran, SOR slash 210 slash 165. IRGC and the uh, Basij have been sanctioned. How many people knew this? That from 2010, based on the, uh, the consultants of the um, uh, Privy Council. And I asked a number of um, legal experts that based on this, how could we have seen so many people connected to the IRGC actually... Um, setting up shop in Canada? Travel, traveling to Canada, right. setting up shop, thank you, and migrating to Canada, investing in Canada. We had one of the associates of Qasem Soleimani, a former minister now, living in Canada for years. And Qasem Soleimani had considered him our man in Canada. How could this have happened? And when we hear that in the drones that are killing people in Ukraine, you see parts from Bombardier, how did that happen? When you see lots of businesses in a way still active in Canada that are partially managed by the money that came through associates of the IRGC, the big question is that were the Canadian institutions aware or unaware of this? I believe that some people were unaware, but there were people 
that had noticed this matter. Look, um, in 2019, um, when I went to Parliament Hill and gave a statement about Iran's environmental crisis and talked about the impact of IRGC and what's it it's doing and some people connected to and partnering with IRGC are in Canada. I also sent some um, news about, let's say, individuals who were whose um, companies or institutions were sanctioned by OFAC and were traveling to Canada and their children were in Canada and are still in Canada. And how could have they brought money into this country without being noticed? Nobody cared. Nobody cared. So there is something wrong. The little guys suffer. The little guys like me, I'm not so little, of course, I'm around 250, 260 pounds, but uh, people who are powerless have lots of problem in Canada with having setting up bank accounts. Like Iranian Canadians have problems a couple of years ago, even if they had, uh, if they've been living here for years, they couldn't. If somebody in their families lost their lives or they were going to get some of the inheritance, they really had problems getting that money. But how you hear that? People are investing and migrating to Canada, bringing millions and millions of dollars. What's your What's your answer to that? I mean, at this stage, you know, maybe in 2019, you could get uh, the government could get away with uh, you know inaction. But at this stage, what what? Uh, and it's funny because they say all the right things, you know, uh, that out there shouting, you know, the prime minister and others. But but this action. What what is really at stake here that is preventing uh, the, putting the IRGC on the terrorist list? And I would I would add the same thing for Europe. Look, the thing is, uh, people, some people have gained from that money for sure. As uh, Deep Throat in the famous uh, Watergate story used to say, "Follow the money." Right. That's that's the, that's the that's the big question, and unfortunately, we don't. We don't see investigative uh, journalists doing their jobs anymore these days. That is sad because I studied journalism in Canada and I had a very good professor was an investigative journalist, Andrew Mitrovica. He was saying that many Canadian journalists avoid doing the right thing. Hmm. Yeah. And that's sad. The, the the I mean these these questions seem like a, a relatively a re- relatively simple ones at this point and and it's and it's, it was a real blow you know you know nor nor is putting the IRGC on the terrorist list going to change everything overnight but um but just the the dragging of the feet and the um, the inaction of these major bodies that keep saying you know oh we care about democracy in Iran we care about you know mass harmony women etc it's 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 galling it's and and it's uh and it's very telling it's very telling that uh ultimately um action is not is not taken um let me ask you a final question uh about something i know you wanted to mention and and you you've um you've talked a bit about the the canadian journalists for free expression uh, has given its International Press Freedom Award this year to Nilofar Hamidi and Elohim Mohammadi. These are the um, two journalists in Iran that 
broke the Masai Mini story to a certain extent and, and were have been jailed. Um, this is something you've promoted and shared. This um, award that was given to them. What does award the awarding of these two journalists uh, mean to you, Nick? First of all, we have to say kudos to Mortaza Abdul Alian, who's on the board of CGFE and fought for this. And he told me that let's nominate these two uh, this year. And I supported this and we were able to uh, go forward with this. And thanks to the board of CGFE who approved this um, proposal, though it was very late to add these two individuals to this year's nominees but to, and to nominate them. But thankfully, they accepted. Uh, look, it's a sign that one, if you um, even r- do the right thing and consider all the risks, go and report something um, like how Masa Amini was uh, detained, how she was beaten up and what happened to her in custody um, to give the real news to the people that's the important task that many reporters have almost forgotten in the last few years. Yeah, it's very prestigious. You cannot make that much money as a reporter. You cannot have a safe job as a reporter. I understand that. But the job of the reporter, based on the um, rules of journalism, is that you have to tell the truth. You have to show it as it is. You have to serve the citizens. And, th- and you have to monitor power. And they did the right thing to do. And um, considering all the risks and um, all the threats they received while they were in prison and the IRGC and the Minister of Intelligence um, charged them with um, espionage, Mm. uh, it was really important to mention their names as real journalists and telling the Iranian regime that we, the Canadians, consider these two individuals good journalists and they should be rewarded for what they've done, not being yeah. detained and uh, being faced with devastating charges. So I think um, I'm so happy that CGFE um, is giving this uh, prestigious award and I hope to see them out of prison and doing their professional jobs in the future. Good for you for helping to make that happen. And it's course, an honor. Of course, it, it, it goes, you know, we can't, um, we'd be remiss not to mention that Iran currently has the worst record per capita in the world now of uh, detaining uh, journalists and in some cases killing them um, for simply doing their job. So uh, that's true. Uh, Nick Kossar, it's uh, it's always a, an education, always a pleasure. Th- thank you so much for taking the time, um, uh, and I I hope you um, uh, will be okay um, coping with the the pain. But um, but uh, for the rest of us, it's gain when you, when we have you on. So uh, very very much appreciated. Thank you so much, and I hope to visit Toronto and uh, let's talk at your studio the next time. Oh, I look forward to it. Thanks, Nick. Bye bye. You bet. Thank you. Nick Ohan-Kosar in Washington, D.C., and this is full-time for Rook for Today. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Savvy Rohan, talented Anahita, Super Parisa, Smart Pega, Rai Mertar, and Groovy Shaya. Um, for all things Rook-related, go to our website, 
rookmedia.com, rookmedia.com, where you can also support us. Subscribe on any of our platforms uh, on our ongoing mission, our audiovisual mission to explore and develop an encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. So Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Telegram, YouTube, Instagram. You can find us on any of those platforms and uh, subscribe on any of them. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. See you Thursday. In the meantime, Mizun Bashin.